This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conneveer, a founder and managing director of Shasta Ventures. We're coming to you live from Seattle. If you have any comments or questions during the next hour, give us a call here in the studio. Our phone lines are open. The number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I am thrilled to welcome my next guest, the president of modern traffic consultant, Scott Kuznicki. He's a traffic engineer with nearly two decades of experience as a transportation mobility expert, transportation safety professional, and traffic operations engineer. Arguably, he's the guy that's responsible for getting stuck at those traffic lights or those merge issues or anything that might drive you a little crazy when you get stuck on the highway or wonder what the hell they were thinking when they laid things out. Scott, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Thanks for the warm welcome, Rob, and for painting a target on my back right away. Um, Yeah, no, I'm fascinated by this. And maybe we just start out by explaining what does it mean to be a traffic engineer? What, what does that mean? It means you're very popular at parties because people do come up to you and say, why haven't they fixed this yet? And we live in a society that is growing increasingly complicated. And so if you want to be successful at managing the transportation system, managing road safety, you really have to understand that there are a lot of variables in play. And for those of us that are you know, in this sort of two-decade, three-decade period, we start to realize that a lot of the solutions come down to politics, and that's probably the most difficult part about working in the engineering profession. Yeah, we'll, we'll start to get into that, but maybe very simplistically, and I, I actually mean this in a very positive way. When you're a traffic engineer, what are you designing, and what are you trying to solve for, and what are the things that you might change around? So are they think how long the lights are a different color or a the color of the, the stripes on the lanes, or what do you actually do and what are the objectives? So as an engineer, I'm responsible for maintaining and improving the quality of life. And I've been entrusted as a licensed professional with the health and safety of the traveling public. And what we're really trying to do in most cities is to optimize the transportation system. So for example, in a traditional model, uh, perhaps we have a street that has a couple of traffic signals and we say, well, people are stopping at three out of five red lights. So why don't we put in a fiber optic connection between those traffic signals? And then we're going to do some studies on the volume of traffic that's currently using the roadway and figure out a way to give them a green light through all five traffic signals. And that accomplishes a couple things. It helps people be more economically productive, which I think is the true goal of transportation engineering, especially in this society where uh, the more time we spend in traffic, the less time we can spend pursuing our passions working on our businesses. And I also work to make the transportation system understandable to the user. And one piece of that puzzle is what we call human factors. It's an understanding of the perceptive patients of human drivers. And we've all come up on a situation on the roadway where we felt like it just wasn't quite right. Maybe you were surprised by a curve in the middle of the night because a sign got knocked down and maintenance didn't respond as soon as they might have been able to to put that sign back up. But there's other things we can do to mitigate for the loss of that. So if we have good pavement markings, if we have good uh, reflectors alongside the roadway, for example, 
And now we're getting to the point where we're starting to see these systems be part of our automobiles. And so if the sign gets knocked down and you're coming into a 30-mile-an-hour curve at 65 miles an hour, within the next three to five years, it's very likely that you'll see a flashing indicator on your dashboard telling you to slow down. So those are the types of things you're thinking about. So maybe just backing up for a moment, when you look at a state like Washington State, how what is the name of the transportation agency here who's responsible for the roads you know that's that's a great question because it's as simple as it is is it a dot is it a department of transportation so we have a washington state department of transportation which manages the state highway system the counties manage all of the roads outside of incorporated areas like this municipalities and then each city is responsible for their own roads now in a state for example State DOT manages all the roads outside of unincorporated areas. And that complexity sometimes is a difficult problem for the traveling public because they're not sure who to call. And so sometimes if you're oh, driving... Oh, there's issues oh, yeah. with the road. Sure. And they also uh, recognize, too, that sometimes it limits the flexibility of an agency. So the, the worst crash problem on a county road intersecting a state highway might be at the bottom of the list for the state agency. And that complicates the way that we look at safety analysis and how improvements. But generally, your state DOT is also going to set some statewide policy goals that they hope that the counties and cities will try to achieve. And one other contextual question, when I'm looking at a large state Department of Transportation, how many people probably work for that Department of Transportation? And then how big is the engineering staff? So in a in a state DOT, you might have anywhere from two to 6,000 people, depending on the size of the state. Um, and the interesting thing is that in the past, we really made technicians, people with two-year degrees, who were honestly the key to delivering road projects and other safety improvements, for example, at a relatively low cost because um, they didn't invest as much in their education, but they were definitely had critical skills that we could make use of. Um, so in a transportation agency like the Washington State DOT, he might find that one-third to one-half of the people are engineers. In our state, the DOT puts a lot of emphasis on public outreach, so they have a very well-developed um, communications team, and that communications team does everything from working on a website to hosting public meetings to creating documentation that can help the public understand the impacts of a project when they're evaluating it. So of the 2,000 to 6,000 employees, how many would be engineers, traffic engineers? Uh, you might, and when you get down to traffic engineers, the people responsible for the traffic signals, the pavement markings, the signing, the safety of the roadway system. In a typical district, which might include, say, three to five counties, you might have only two or three actual traffic engineers. But you're going to have a whole bunch of other civil engineers. You're going to have people that understand structures, people that understand soil mechanics. You're going to have people uh, that understand pavement design, for example. And they're all working together as a team to try to maintain that highway infrastructure. So between these different organizations you're talking about in a given state, you could have a 1,000 people that are just doing the design in the background, forget the people that are doing road grading or actually physically doing the markings. There are a lot of people behind the scenes that are really thinking about that infrastructure design on a daily basis. Yes, there are. And th- those people are doing something that is uniquely um, attributed to engineering, which is they are balancing cost with benefit. 
And that's, I believe, the most difficult thing for the traveling public to understand is they may say, well, you know, why didn't you just do this? And we would say, well, we got 90% of the benefit for 50% of the cost. And if we wanted to spend 150% of that, we might have only received 95% of the benefit. And so we're always making those trade-offs. But we keep in the forefront this idea that we're responsible for human lives, that we care about people and we care about safety. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by road markings. And it goes from when you look at the exit sign, the design of the reflectivity and the colors and the fonts. When I was a kid, when I first started riding a bike or a big wheel, I loved to get a big set of chalk, and I would go out of my parents' driveway, and I would build roads and design roads for fun. And sometimes I'd find that they didn't work so well when we tried to do it. Like me and my brother might actually run into each other. Yeah, and I had a similar experience um, in the sandbox. And when you have a sandbox and you have just the right amount of water, you can create things. And I think that that play helps us discover our aptitudes and our skills. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you're interested in asking us questions about transportation and where is it headed, give us a call. Our number here is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. I'm here in the studio right now with the president of Modern Traffic Consultants, Scott Kuznicki. So bringing this into tech, wanted to talk about this background because everybody talks all the time about autonomous vehicles and making them smarter and putting these senses together so that they can use AI to navigate around a city. But arguably, that's only half of the equation, and people don't think quite as much about how might the physical infrastructure be upgraded and put together and updated in a way that's more conducive to these vehicles. Yeah, I think you're you're touching on a topic that has gained a lot of notoriety in the technology and the engineering circles in the past couple of years. In fact, if people are interested, they can look at look up Automated Vehicles Symposium on the Internet. That's happening in Orlando next week. And I'll be hosting a workshop there called Reading the Road Ahead, which is studying machine vision and traffic control device interactions. And one of the things that we're finding is that we are... Reading the Road Ahead. ahead. And you said studying machine vision system and traffic control device interactions. What does it take for a road sign to be visible to me as a human driver and to you as a human driver, but to also be visible, recognized, and understood by the computer systems that are running today's modern uh, vehicle that's either equipped with, say, um, some form of driver, perhaps able, capable of fully autonomous driving? So how do you impact that then? Are, are we going to need new signs on the highways, or is it more about helping the people that are designing these autonomous vehicles incorporate the right technologies so that those cars are less likely, those vehicles are less likely to misinterpret signs that are there, or also know how to handle things if those signs, as you were mentioning earlier, disappear? Yeah, and I think that's that's really the crux of the issue, and one of the things that um, we're hoping to try to do is to raise that conversation to a level where nobody's afraid to be honest about the failures of these systems. If you understand the limitations of a system and you understand the failures, you can respond as perhaps as a user, perhaps as a designer of the environment in which the systems operate. 
Um, but as you may imagine, the risk of tort liability leaves a lot of the machine vision manufacturers and audible beam manufacturers. Oh, people are afraid of getting sued. Right. They don't want to say, well, our system was proven to not work in this circumstance. And so that's been a difficult conversation to start. But I think the issue there is really engendering a lot of trust and looking for partnership opportunities and cutting through the rhetoric. So tell me a little bit about what are you doing now? What am I doing now? Yeah. Well, I'm so what is modern traffic consultants? I'm working on some really interesting projects related to the, the future of mobility, which we would describe as automated, connected, electric, and shared. And I run that backwards, and I say that we want our future. And the, and the acronym is ACES. ACES, that's okay. right. And I want it to be sustainable, right? I want it to be equitable, cooperative, and accessible. That's what we're looking for in a transportation system. And in order to do that, um, we have to recognize that the automobile has opened up tremendous opportunity for people since it was released over 100 years ago. Um, between 1903 and 1913, for example, in New York, they went from having one car in the street and endless horses and carriages to having one horse and carriage and endless cars. Yeah, it's a picture that people love to see. It's, it's an amazing transformation over a short period of time. And I think we may see that transformation begin to occur to, again, but um, Mark Twain, to channel Mark Twain, we might say, well, the rumors of the death of the automobile perhaps are greatly exaggerated because people value their independence. And as you might have seen just from walking through a shopping mall, sometimes people store a lot of stuff in their vehicles. So I'm guessing with yeah. the name consultants, you have clients that you work with, maybe Talk about an example of a client or two you work with and the type of work that you do. So sometimes uh, I'll be working with uh, um, venture capital firms, for example, who are looking to make an investment in a product or a service. And they'll say, well, give us your assessment as someone who's worked with agencies for 20 years. What do you think about this particular model that they're proposing? What do you think the market is, for example, for um, long-distance toll roads in a certain state? Uh, if you were to look at uh, this new product that promises to be revolutionary in terms of perhaps a road markings or um, a new kind of signing or something like that, what are the what are the types of things that agencies might ask us if we were to start to try to sell these products? When, to when them? people say a revolutionary new lane marking, mm -hmm. what does that mean? Well, you know, we used to think, and this it happened over twenty years ago in San Diego. You might recall that a bunch of Buicks were equipped with sensors that were capable of reading studs that had been placed in the pavement, and they drove up uh, Interstate 15 outside of San Diego. Uh, and my recollection is that uh, they had to have two alternators in each vehicle to power the uh, computers that were in the trunk that were doing all of the processing. Was the idea that that would be markings that they would follow yes. to navigate autonomously down the highway and that was our solution 20 years ago well now so we're going to drill a whole series of holes in the highway we're going to drop these studs in the holes and these buicks are going to use their onboard processing to follow these studs down the road that's what people thought okay and it what was happened? the leading technology at the time well we we quickly realized that the processing power that was needed to do that was there, but it took up an enormous amount of space, an entire trunk in the vehicle, which rendered the trunk useless. And as our imaging technology has evolved, we started to rely on cameras. And we said, well, you know, we can take a pretty low-resolution camera and pick up the pavement markings. But what happens if it's raining or snowing? And so we look at other solutions. We have uh, light-detecting and ranging systems, commonly known as LIDAR. We built point clouds. And now we're into what we're calling simultaneous location and mapping 
which is saying, well, I've, I have these pavement markings, but I also have the face of this building that I know hasn't changed. And I can use that to get my position on the roadway. And so people aren't using some high-powered GPS. They just actually- know where it is, but it's the same way that any human being kind of figures out where you are when you come out of a subway and then you walk around, you look at a road sign, and then you see a building you recognize. You're like, oh. Exactly. This is where I am when I pop out of this subway exit for the first time. And I like to highlight that interaction between what machines need and what we need uh, because context is extremely important. And that's part of the issue that is evolving concerning ethics related to autonomous vehicles and driving, which is something else that I've been working to address is how do we understand how these limitations need to be managed so that we don't give a computer too much control of a car at the wrong time? Well, what does that mean now? A lot of people like to talk about this so-called trolley car problem. And a lot of people that are working in autonomous vehicles kind of roll their eyes when they hear this problem. But it's this idea that you have the trolley car rolling down the hill, and it has one or two people on board, and there's a switch. And if it goes one way, it kills an infant. It goes the other way, it kills an old woman or something like that, some variation of that. What do you think about that question? Like, what does the car decide to do when it can decide – which is the less of two terrible alternatives? Some of our listeners may be familiar with the code of ethics for robots. And one of the. Oh, this is the Isaac Asimov? Yes, and okay. one of the chief tenets is that the robot should not harm a human when it can sacrifice itself. And I was thinking about that the other day as I was riding a motorcycle and someone had not covered their load and they had lost a bunch of trash on the road. And I was thinking if I were an autonomous vehicle and there were a vehicle in an oncoming lane, I would have to choose, if I were following the robot code of ethics, shall we say, to drive over the trash, no matter how much damage it did to the vehicle. Or I might choose to brake heavily, but I might not brake heavily if there's someone following me closely, and I know that I could present a risk to the occupants of the vehicle that I'm controlling, or perhaps the vehicle behind me. And that so this really, is what you mean by the ethics. Yes, because you can't program ethics into a computer. You can only tell the computer how to respond to situations based on a set of variables. But humans have intuition, and sometimes we make those decisions in a split second. And uh, cognitive researchers have been looking at this for decades. How does an ethical framework for a human being play into how they make a split-second decision and how they respond instantly to a threat, for example? And I don't think that we know the answers to that. Well, one of the things that's interesting is you might have a self-driving vehicle – that knows that in sacrificing the vehicle, they might kill the driver of the vehicle. And in split seconds, sometimes people just think of self-preservation ahead of all else. They may, in fact, do that. They don't even have time to really do an ethical thing. It almost goes straight to instinct. And the question is, does the car have more information than I might have? Because I'm only seeing visible light. The car is seeing all kinds of other things that I might not see because it might have five or six machine vision systems. So as you look at the future of transportation, this is one of those topics that people talk about. What's another one of the big topics, the big questions that people are trying to figure out right now with autonomous vehicles and how they fit into our infrastructure? Well, there are a lot of concerns raised about autonomous vehicles. And people ask questions about, well, are we going to have more vehicles traveling more miles? Are people going to choose to use an autonomous vehicle over using transit, perhaps? Um, And I think that that points to the idea that people do value that uh, personal mobility. But I think that people also have a social conscience, and they recognize that there are reasons why they would want to use public transit to commute into downtown Seattle, for example, or 
commute to various places in LA where there's a rapidly developing mass transit system. And so we have to really understand and grapple with the question of, uh, as a society of whether we're going to treat these vehicles as uh, their own new class of transportation in the new mobility arena or whether we're going to simply recognize that they are highly evolved automobiles that people are using in similar ways. And that could very much change the approach that people take to regulating autonomous vehicles. And it could have a chilling effect on the potential economic benefits of autonomous vehicles, for example. So one scenario that plays out is that someone may choose to live far east in the Inland Empire and commute to downtown Los Angeles every day. They could drive 65 to 80 miles, perhaps, and they could sleep for a good portion of the two hours. That and that they don't takes. really care, and they have the money to do it, and that way they can have a huge yard but still work downtown. Right, so they can have some of the things that they're looking for in life in terms of you know their housing situation. And people say, well, if that happens, everyone's going to move out there and um, – and I said, well, no, because there is a balance between well, as soon as the demand rises, the price for homes is going to rise. And if enough people moved out of certain more desirable areas in L.A., the price of homes there may fall. And so a lot of these things are self-balancing, and we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that we can predict every single thing that's going to happen in our society as a result of this. And I think we have to be willing to recognize that people make independent choices based on their own economic needs and, and not restrict people who may really need this technology. It is interesting to think – 30 years out, 40 years out, if you had vehicles that were just as safe as elevators, then you might be able to build all new form factors for vehicles. So instead of having to have something the size of an SUV to go from the Inland Empire and commute 65 miles excuse me, into Los Angeles, you might have something that's a lot smaller like a pod. It's lightweight, doesn't actually take that much weight, and you could fit maybe – 10 of these into something that was normally the size of a bus. Do you see those types of things happening 30, 40 years out? Yeah. I try to find ways to more efficiently utilize space, especially in cities where uh, if cars are not being parked all day, we suddenly find ourselves with extra parking available, which we may want to repurpose into other things. For example, a parking garage may end up with a rooftop garden, which is a totally new form factor for a parking garage, if you think about it. A rooftop what? Garden. Garden. Okay. So maybe before, the demand for parking was so high that we had to park 60 cars on the roof. And now that people are commuting in an autonomous vehicle that perhaps they send out to pick up other people who are closer into the city who have mobility challenges, can't use transit, find transit inconvenient, for example, or don't want to drive their own car in, into the downtown areas, our most congested center city areas. Um, I think we're going to find some really interesting land uses crop up. But when you talk about form factors, it takes me back to all the years that I've been following the automotive industry. And you probably have the same thought I do is that uh, every auto show starts to look like you know one of the Tron movies where everyone is trying to create the most crazy design that they possibly can. As opposed to what people actually want to buy? Well, maybe people don't know what they want to buy yet. But I think you're on to something, and that is the idea that um, we've learned a lot about automotive safety and design in the last 20 years. And one of the things, of course, we've learned is that we want the vehicle to absorb energy in a crash so that the occupants don't have to suffer the injuries related with that energy dissipation. And sometimes I see these vehicles that get designed and they have no crush zones front and rear. And I think, well, is that a trade-off that we're making because we're assuming that the technology is going to virtually eliminate the 95% or so of crashes that are caused by human error and inattention? What do you think is going to happen? 
I think computers are going to do what they've always done, which is sometimes they're going to surprise us with how much they can fail inexplicably. Yeah, I think people are learning that a lot right now. They're starting to see that because as an investor, I've been following very closely what's been going on with autonomous vehicle technologies. And about three years ago, the hype really got going. People got really excited about it. They started thinking it's right around the corner, et cetera. And then people have really started to realize over the last 12 to 18 months that mass adoption of these technologies is still a decade or two out. Yeah. For the full, you know, high level autonomy. I would definitely agree with that. And what the problem that we're going to see is that we're going to coexist with these vehicles for 20 years. Yeah. Decades. Yes. And some people have already figured out that if you are dealing with an automated system that is attempting to be extremely safe, it's pretty easy to bully it into doing what you want it to do, which is to back down and let me go through the four-way stop first. And most of us, uh, a lot of our listeners probably deal with discourteous drivers on a daily basis. As a bicyclist, especially when you're merging. Yes. (laughs) I'm especially sensitive to it as, as a bicyclist and we're all pedestrians at some point in every journey that we make, even if it's as simple as uh, walking across the street to your parked car. And what we really want to hold paramount is this idea that autonomous vehicles have to protect human life. And that could be a challenge when the humans that are interacting with these systems are not sharing those same values. Well, it's interesting also because at the end of the day, you could make roads really safe by having speed limits of five miles an hour. Nobody's going to get killed by a vehicle or almost nobody, but nobody's going to get to where they need to go either. And there's this implicit trade-off that kind of has to happen, which is very uncomfortable, but very real in transportation, which is people do have to take some risk to actually live their lives. Yeah. Life is slice of soul of risk. And, and we talk about it in investing, right? You say, well, what is, what is my risk tolerance and how much am I willing to give up now to potentially gain it back later. Uh, But I think that the social responsibility issue is very interesting because more and more people talk about society taking responsibility for the actions of individuals in society and perhaps less and less about individuals taking responsibility for their own actions. And when we we look at what happened in Germany as they sought to deal with their um, impaired driving issues over the years, they what, realize, what do you mean by impaired? You mean drinking? Yes, yeah, drinking mean and driving. People yeah. that are too old to drive and they don't have the ability to respond properly. I or? think their their focus was what do we do with people who are consuming alcohol? Okay, and so driving. the ones who were driving home from Oktoberfest. Yes, and maybe in May, perhaps. But um, how, so, how did they deal with it? They raised the fines to a very high level, and they made certain that uh, people lost their driving licenses and had to find alternative means of getting around. And we need to tackle that issue because we still see 30 to 40% of our annual fatalities in the United States are caused by impaired driving. In Washington State, the we benefit from having a state toxicology lab, for example, that deals with all of the blood draws that are taken in traffic stops. And our toxicology lab has discovered that approximately half of all alcohol draws also contain THC, Hmm. which is, of course, a substance that impairs a person's ability to drive. And so what we're we're seeing new challenges emerging uh, in the roadway network, but we're also seeing there are some societal challenges. And THC being cannabis or marijuana, however you want to talk about it. And there is a floor for THC 
uh, actually, I guess you could say it's a ceiling for THC impairment of five nanograms per milliliter. And generally after someone consumes uh, cannabis, they see that they get down to that level between four and six hours afterwards, depending on their metabolism and the amount consumed. And what's going to happen and this is the nexus now with autonomous vehicles. It, I hate to say this, but it makes me think of the highway. Well, yeah, it makes me think of um, the scene, I think it's from Black Sheep, where Chris Farley inhales a bunch of nitrous oxide and he's driving a police car down the middle of a divided highway. But uh, it's no laughing matter because as these automated driver assistance systems, or what we call ADAS systems, and they're in vehicles that you can buy and rent today. I rented a vehicle recently in the Midwest that, was capable of lane keeping assist. People are going to be more come more comfortable with letting the vehicle do the work for them, but we haven't designed those systems to take on that kind of responsibility. And when people and there's a statement that uh, was made by a former uh, FA administrator from USDOT, and he said that humans are notoriously bad managers of reliable automated systems. And so we may be imbuing people with a false sense of security and a false sense of confidence as we say, well, look at this amazing lane-keeping system that prevents you from drifting back and forth. And they may think, well, the police will never know that I'm stoned, man, as they're driving along. And we don't want people to do that because it's a misuse and an abuse of the system, and it's way yeah. beyond its capabilities. Unintended consequences. Exactly. But what I want to talk about now and ask you about is scooters and I don't think anybody thought that scooters would become this wave, this craze that we see across cities around the world, not just in the U.S., but around the world. These bikes that look kind of like the razors that we all remember as kids that we had that folded and you break your wrist or something. But now they're motorized because everything's getting smaller. Batteries are getting better. You're seeing them all over the place. What are your thoughts on scooters, Scott? It's amazing because it's allowed people who are too old to be riding them to look like and act like kids again in some ways. And I don't say that to be derogatory, but I say it because some of these new mobility options that we have out there are just plain fun. I was in Columbus, Ohio recently, and I went to their Smart City Experience Center and needed to get up to the Capitol and found one of the scooters. And it was right there. And as you, you go through the sign-up process on the app, it tells you that you're supposed to ride in the street. I thought, well, why do I want to ride in the street? I might die. Right. So then what do people do? They ride on the sidewalk. And not everybody is in control of the momentum that they're trying to manage on a scooter. And so we see a lot of conflicts with pedestrians, and we see a lot of cities stepping back and saying, well, do we... You use these big words for things sometimes, like the momentum you're trying to manage. It's like they don't know how to slow down. They're going too fast. Right. They don't realize that they're... They are maybe 180 pounds of something that's moving on a six-pound scooter that has wheels that are only about six inches in diameter. And it's the brakes don't stop. really work that well. They're going to go into full Superman and fly over the front yep. if they that's make right. some mistakes. And in Washington, D.C., I did ride in the bike lane because it was smooth and it didn't have any trash in it. And I got up to about 18 miles an hour. And I realized that uh, if something happens and I come off this thing, I'm going to be in the hospital for a month. And, well, and that's what's happening to some people, right? Yeah. They are it, ending up unexpectedly in the hospital with something that was fun to begin with. And those are the stories that make the news. And it takes a long time to collect data to really understand what the risk profile really looks like. Are most users being irresponsible? 
responsible? The answer is probably not. Are these things helping people make a connection to transit, for example, and not bring a car down and save on the enormous parking costs that a lot of big cities are levying on the people that want to come into their city centers? The answer is unequivocally yes. Well, they're incredibly small, and it's it's really interesting. They weren't really possible in the past because the idea of the dockless scooter is a powerful one. A scooter that knows where it is, can communicate with the internet, can communicate with the person that needs to pick it up and charge it, and then batteries that have just gotten powerful enough to be able to be used for half a day or a day of constant use, along with motors that are powerful enough to push somebody who weighs 170 pounds, 180 pounds up a hill. Like These technologies just weren't even possible two years ago, three years ago, four years ago at anything approaching a reasonable cost. Yeah, and it's also changed how we look at something that uh, some people refer to as a walk score or the walk shed. Uh, perhaps a walk score. Yeah. Or what's a walk score? It says, well, how easy is it for me to go from location X to anywhere within X number of feet, for example. So if there's a really steep hill in one direction, it's going to take you more energy. So you're, you're going to, you're going to wear yourself out sooner. Um, maybe there's no sidewalks in a. Is that a direction. high walk score or a low walk score? That means it would probably have a low walk score. Okay. Are the sidewalks less likely that somebody's going to walk it? Right, but a scooter changes that equation dramatically. The foot scooter allows someone to broaden um, what is capable without using an actual or another motorized vehicle. Technically, scooters are motorized vehicles, which is. What we see in our laws is, well, motorized vehicles are allowed to do certain things. Bicycles are considered vehicles, but sometimes the riders will act like pedestrians when it's convenient. Sometimes they require by law to act like pedestrians. So, Is there a scooter score? That would be fascinating. You take a walk score and figure out if the scooter can help you get someplace in the same amount of time. But there's no scooter score yet, just the walk score. Not that I know of, but okay. someone's going to pitch that company idea. But soon. it sounds like you have the low walk score that's when you have somebody start to get a sense for if they're going to want to use scooters. And it's probably a way for people to have a sense for where do you put the scooters in the morning that somebody's likely to want to use them. Yeah. And, and you think about, you're not just looking at, you know, what's the potential user base. You're also saying, what are the barriers between here and there uh, to someone walking? So for example, if I had to walk across a long bridge over a ravine or a river, um, and it was a somewhat blustery day, and perhaps there was a risk of rain. I may not choose to walk the 2,000 feet, you know, almost a half a mile. But if I could take a scooter and I could cut my time down by quadrupling my speed, I'm definitely going to do that, right? Because now I don't really care about my exposure to the elements or the environment. To the environment. Oh, you don't me. mind it, yeah. As long yeah. as it's not snowing, and it's kind of hard to yeah. drive a scooter in snow, I would think. And this is where Depends we're on how big the wheels are. Right, and where where are scooters competing with other new mobility services that are not as that are a little bit more mature, like Lyft and Uber? Well, one of the things that I'm also fascinated by is how technology can continue to make scooters safer and easier to use, and in some ways, disposable might not be the right word, but not as expensive, more easily replaced. So you could actually start to build ABS in the scooters and things that make them stabler. And there's a lot of technologies that actually would inherently make them safer, even without a helmet or bike lanes. Right. So perhaps some sort of gyroscopic stabilizing technology, um, perhaps some type of a system that is relatively passive that warns you of the need to slow down uh, or something that 
finds a way to limit your speed when going down a hill, which is where uh, seemingly out of control scooter accidents can occur with foot scooters. So, so one of the things that we hear a lot about, maybe not as much recently, but over the last, I'd say, year, is scooter chaos. Scooters everywhere. People leave scooters askew on sidewalks and places that sh- they shouldn't do that. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I started a Facebook uh, group called Bike Dump last year. Bike Dump. Bike Dump. It was a place for people to post photographs of bike share bikes that have been left in unusual circumstances. Perhaps that's the the nice way to put it. And some of them were fascinating. Uh, We didn't find any completely disassembled bikes, but we found some bikes that uh, probably weren't being used in the normal way, being left behind. But I got to thinking, well, what if Bike Dump could become a way for bike share companies to find bikes that have been lost? Perhaps they'd been sitting in the shade for two weeks and the batteries had gone completely dead and there was no known location of that bike. And someone posts a photograph of it on social media and suddenly Line Bike says, well, there's our lost bike, unit number 1864. Let's go get it. Uh, And nobody said, well, here's a million dollars. Thanks for your idea. But I think that social media is actually helping us change how these mobility services get used. Um, It's the organic growth of the service can sometimes simply come from people talking about how much fun it is. They're saying, and it's easy to tweet at all of these companies and say, I went to this bike share uh, fixed station and there were no bikes. Um, You guys have to do a better job of maintaining your bikes. Uh, the seat adjustment is difficult. You see all kinds of things being blasted out on social media that are helping these companies refine their products. And very often... Are they paying attention? Sometimes I, I, it feels like you're tweeting into the wind. I think that the companies that gain respect with their customers are the ones that put a lot of effort early on into customer success management. And you see that with some startups where you just get the feeling that the people are there to serve their customer, not to make a buck. And those are the kind of companies that... Um, I think we want to respect and we want to encourage because, after all, the customer is the one who's making your company successful. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conyveer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Scott Kuznicki, the president and managing engineer of Modern Traffic Consultants. And we're talking about the future of mobility and transportation and specifically talking about scooters. Now, Talking about social media and the future of transportation, they do have an interesting interplay. And you take a look at what happened with Uber and that hashtag delete Uber movement that happened a year or two ago that really helped Lyft catch up from a distant second place to a strong second place to Uber. Yeah, and that that's the power of, of- People sort of saying, well, you know, let's see if we can find out if other people agree with our ideas about how a company should be run or the values that a company should hold. But sometimes I think that it places a lot of onus on the company itself. And companies can't often control their public perception or they attempt to control their public perception. And I'm not saying that's the case with Uber and it might backfire on them. Um, What's fascinating, for example, here locally is to go to the Twitter feeds or the Facebook feeds of some of the larger transportation agencies. And it seems like 99% of the people that are posting are dissatisfied. And that raises the question of... Well, nobody retweets the ones where they go, 
That was the most amazing experience. You don't really see too many of that for an airline or Uber where, you know, you get 2,000 retweets of a complimentary Uber experience. Well, when I was in the Middle East, I found that people actually review highways and bridges. And they talk about either how they got stuck in traffic and they missed an appointment or they say this highway is always free-flowing and everyone is driving 120 kph. It's wonderful. And you start to see that what people are valuing is speed and convenience. And they're looking for that from the transportation system. And I think the goal of our transportation professionals in the future is to really, to instead of saying, well, you're doing the wrong thing, there's too much traffic, let's provide all these options, is to figure out how to make the flow of traffic more efficient and serve the needs of what users really want. So coming back to that, looking forward 10 years, what do you think happens with scooters in cities? Because I always think when... People talk about, oh, there's all these scooters left on the sidewalk, et cetera. It's pretty interesting because in modern technology, you can find out who left that side, who left that scooter there, who moved it, whether it was that person or, or something else. There's no reason that on every block in Seattle or San Francisco, you couldn't take another street spot for a car and just designate it a scooter storage area for a given block. So – how much kind of restriping, rezoning stuff do you think happens like that to support these new transportation options? You know, it's, it's, that's a fascinating concept, and it, it really starts to play into the convenience of these new mobility options. And is someone willing to, f- A, find that spot? Perhaps they're not really using the map on the screen to look for it. Are they willing to dump the scooter there? And then perhaps they have to cross the street, wait for a traffic signal, walk a half a block, three quarters of a block to get to the business that they're trying to get to. And I think the magic of the scooter movement is that it has taken out that last one minute, that last 90 seconds, the last two minutes of the journey and said, it's just like walking. When you're there, you're there. You leave the scooter right there. What I thought was fascinating about some of the scooter services that I... And in fact, just jumping in for a minute, what you could do, and this is where cities get to experiment with different incentives, is they might say, hey, you can leave the scooter wherever you want, but it's going to cost you an extra 50 cents or an extra dollar. And then you could have other people, which are like the juicers that go and pick up scooters today, where you could pay people, hey, 50 cents per scooter if they move them to some storage spot. So, yeah, in essence, you could... Um, you could force that. Yeah, you could create that service that helps you find the order that you want. Uh, I was actually required by the app to take photographs of the scooter where I left it. and Oh, to document it. And this wouldn't have happened 10 years ago without LTE networks and the, and the availability of instantly transmitting this data and the fact that they're probably storing this picture. And who knows how long they're storing it? And who knows if they're doing some type of... Um, artificial intelligence machine learning on oh, the you know photographs that people are Because if they're not doing it now, it'll happen, happen later. And that's all in the agreement that we never read. So we've got about 10 minutes here, and I'd, I'd love to move from talking about what's happened and how roads have been engineered in the past and how cities are dealing with scooters and some of these options now. What do you see coming in these time frames? What are the, what's going to happen in the next five to 10 years, and then working out to when will humans be excluded from actually driving cars? Yeah, I think that the full exclusion of humans from driving cars, and this is what the experts are saying, you you balance the optimists with the pessimists, and you say it's probably going to be close to 20 to 30 years out where we're going to see that. That soon. 
I think it's possible. And what we're our focus is really on understanding um, where these vehicles can operate safely. And I think it's very likely that perhaps in maybe 25 years, we will see that certain roads will exclude human driving, especially if there is a crash risk associated. But it all depends on the market saturation of autonomous vehicles that are capable of operating in every domain um, under any circumstance. And we call that level five automation. It's where a vehicle is capable of operating on any road yeah, and, and doesn't require driver. And when you say domain and circumstance, that's the idea of they can drive through a snowstorm or pouring rain or circumstances that could be hard for anybody to drive in. Yep. And Volvo has been working on that issue. For example, um, they've been able to take a car and drive it down a snowy road where none of the pavement markings were visible. And the car relied entirely on the slope that it could detect in the ditch. And when we talked about simultaneous location and mapping earlier, there's a line of trees along the road. And maybe I don't want to say the car was assuming that it should drive between the trees, but it did a Probably pretty good job. Probably did, yeah. <laughs> so do you think, also looking for more prosaic things, do you think there will be lanes that will be just for autonomous vehicles? Because one of the things that I wondered about, say, five years ago, ten years ago, when California got all excited about the bullet train that was going to go from San Francisco to L.A., that we all know is going to take at least 25 to 30 years to build anyways, why wouldn't you just build lanes down the middle of I-5 between the two cities, make it really smooth, and say that only autonomous vehicles can go on those lanes at high speeds? That's wouldn't the, that be a little cheaper than building high-speed rail? It's actually quite a bit cheaper, and some legislators in California came up with the idea of building those additional lanes and saying, well, this is sort of our Autobahn lanes on I-5. And I would say just that using autonomous vehicles, they didn't get that far. Oh, people. Yeah. But I think we, we, we have to recognize that the American driving population is trained differently and we have different expectations than, than the say, Europeans. Oh yeah. The Europeans are much more in tune with being focused on the driving task. That's what I've noticed being on the Audubon and I'm sure you've driven on the Audubon. And then you have well. the South Americans are at the other end of the spectrum, but they're also attentive. I, had a great time riding a scooter in Italy, an actual ride-on um, motorized gasoline-powered scooter, petrol-powered yeah, scooter. Yeah, the fast ones. Call it. The ones right. where you feel like you're riding a motorcycle, but they're just a little more dangerous. Yeah, and you. but one thing that you recognize is that you don't really feel unsafe because as you look at the drivers, you realize that nobody is holding a handheld device. I challenge any of our listeners to drive in an American city and look for people who aren't holding a handheld device. Well, you device. see it at every single traffic light now. You do, and it's, it's a you're dangerous thing. second in thing. line, you know it's actually the worst place to actually look at your phone because you have to remember to honk at the person in front of you that stopped <laughs> and didn't move when it turned green. No, that, I think you're, you're onto something there. But the idea that uh, we need special lanes is an interesting one because I know that there are some successful startups, and even in the trucking industry, I understand there was just a deployment in Florida uh, that took place where uh, a truck was able to, I believe, leave a rest stop and drive down a segment of freeway and then pull into a parking space. And that's, that's really amazing to say, well... Oh, on the public highway. Yeah. We've that was reached, Starsky. Yeah. We've reached the point where we Starsky are capable Starsky Robotics, of yes. And we're also looking at truck platooning and how, how can trucks follow each other at a 30-foot distance but use computers to mitigate the risk of following so closely when what we really want to see is a three to four to five second following distance to ensure there's plenty of room to stop early. And I guess that points to the idea that 
being aware of your surroundings and being aware of the fact that there may be an autonomous vehicle next to you. And as you buy a new car, um, there's no federal law that mandates that the salespeople train you on all the features of your car. And so it's a good idea to read that owner's manual and maybe find an open stretch of rural freeway where you can really see if the lane keeping assist system works the way that you think it does. Yeah, but nobody gets to do that. Well, when they tell you to put your hands on the wheel, put your hands on the wheel. So, so what else do you see happening the next, say, five years that people haven't really realized, but we're all going to realize in five years? I think there's an unfortunate trend here that's actually not happening in Europe, say in the Netherlands, for example, where we are undervaluing the urban freeway system and the recognition that we need to decongest the urban freeway system to achieve perhaps a climate goals is a whole bunch of cars sitting in traffic is not helping us. What, what's an urban freeway system? So for example, uh, let's, let's look at LA and we say, well, we have the notorious 405 and the 110 and the 705 and the 10 here in Seattle, we have the I-405 on, um, in the eastern side of Lake Washington that carries an enormous amount of traffic. And it's just, it doesn't have the capacity to support the kind of traffic that um, demands to use that freeway. And what happens is when you don't expand the urban freeway system, you cause a lot of diversion into our arterials, collectors, neighborhood streets. And that's a bad thing because that actually discourages people from walking and bicycling. And so the freeway system is really the workhorse of an urban area, and we can't discount its ability to move an enormous amount of people. And as we get more and more people using the freeway system, connecting to park and rides, taking transit into the densest areas of, of our cities, for example, the downtown or the city center, we're going to see that there's less traffic on the neighborhood streets. And eventually we're going to get to the point where right now, for example, some people may find that it's actually more cost-effective for them to take an Uber to a park and ride to catch a bus, ride a bicycle on a, on a good day, um, maybe catch a ride with a friend, than to own a car. And that's if they make that choice, well, we want to be able to support to that. That's of course absolutely yes. starting to happen when you look at buying patterns of vehicles today. Right. And I've been looking at uh, cash-strapped transit agencies that say that they can't afford to build more parking. Um, and by doing that, they're actually eliminating a large portion of their customer base that, that wants to be able to drive and park. And maybe the solution is to find private investment in what I call the mobility marketplace, where you build parking garages with flat decks. And over time, you change the use of those decks. So for example, the rooftop deck may eventually feature a community garden. It'll feature solar um, collectors. It'll feature batteries, perhaps to store energy that can be used to charge the transportation network company vehicles during the day. Uh, we're getting into a place where there is no limit to what the private sector can achieve if they're unleashed, because um, I have envisioned a future where I can drive or get a ride to a mobility marketplace, grab a cup of coffee, maybe make an appointment to have my, my hair cut when I'm done with work that day when I come back to that same spot, and do that all in, in a one-stop shop where those vendors are actually paying the marginal cost of paying off that parking garage. Well, I think it's a future we're all looking forward to. I think you've painted a beautiful picture, and I think it is a lot closer than we think. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Rob. And for people that want to keep up with you, where should they go? Well, I am on Twitter, Scott Kuznicki. I'm also on LinkedIn, and I'm on Facebook. I have a page, Scott O. Kuznicki, on Facebook. Feel free to follow me there. Great. Thanks again, Scott. 
Thank you, Rob. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 